opportunity for them to come to our text together. Um, as always, kids are welcome to uh, stay with us as we come to God's Word together this morning. Uh, from the book of Esther, chapter 1, verses 1 through 21. Now, before we get to Esther, if you're not familiar with where it is in your Bible, if you can find the book of Psalms and just go backwards, uh, you'll go backwards through Job and then Esther. As you're finding that book this morning, uh, have you ever felt like God is far off, aloof, invisible? <laughs> Maybe that's you on a good day. Maybe the thought of a cosmic being who is all-powerful makes you roll your eyes because there's nothing that proves this being's existence. Maybe there are too many disappointment, disappointments of life. The idea that God would even care about you or anyone for that matter is hard to believe. What about the trials of life, the disappointments, the illnesses, the unfulfilled desires on a personal level, and not to mention oppression, persecution, war. Is there a God? And if there is, where is he? Over the remainder of the summer, we are going to be answering those questions and others, not from some abstract or philosophical way, but through the story of Esther. A true story, a down-to-earth story of God's people in a time when it seemed God was silent and hope was lost. A time 2,500 years ago that we have difficult, difficulty understanding and imagining. A, a time and culture so different from ours in terms of uh, customs and assumptions about life. And yet this book answers and asks the same questions about this God. And if he cares about what's happening in our lives, and if he does care, does he intervene? Let's read Esther 1, verses 1 through 21. This is a long passage, so hang in there with me, but there's a lot happening, and it's kind of exciting. Now, in the days of... Ashuarius, the Ashuarius who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces. In those days when King Ashuarius sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him. While he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars, and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyx, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, 
and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion, for the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ashuarius. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Methuman, Bitztha, Harbana, Bithka, Abigath, Zethar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served the, in the presence of King Ashuarius to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. And this the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment. The men next to him being Karshena, Seth, Sethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Meriz, Marcina, and Memepkin, the seven princes of Persia and Media, and also who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti because she has not performed the command of King Ashuarius delivered by the eunuchs? Then Memukin said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in the provinces of King Ashuarius. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all people, causing them to look at their husbands, all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Ashuarius commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noblewomen of Persia and Media, who have heard of the queen's behavior, will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty." If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it may not be repealed that Vashti is never again to come before King Ashuarius and let, king, let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all the kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Memukin, easy for me to say, proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in his own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for this story that has been given to us in the book of Esther. Lord, we pray that you would give us wisdom and understanding. Lord, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. A book that can be difficult at times to understand, even though we may think we know Help us, Lord God, to be transformed by it and conformed to it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So this morning is going to be a lot of background and setting the stage for the remainder of our series in the book of Esther. But I hope that we will still come away this morning not merely with knowledge about this book or this time period, but with a greater understanding of God's providence and a deeper love and greater hope in this God. Before we get into the text and context, we need to understand and define what we're talking about when we talk about God's providence. The word is only used once in the Bible in Acts chapter 4, and yet the reality and the implications of it are all over Scripture and all over our, our lives. Providence is God's activity throughout history in providing for the needs of humanity. Providence is how God cares for the universe and everyone in it. The Westminster Confession of Faith in chapter 5 puts it this way in chapter 5, uh, verse 1. God, the great creator of all things, doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things. From the greatest even to the least, by his most wise and holy providence, according to his infallible foreknowledge, and the free and immutable counsel of his own will, to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. And then in verse 3, it continues, God in his ordinary providence makes use of means, meaning the everyday aspects of life, yet is free to work without, above, and against them at his pleasure. So the doctrine of providence is the reference to that preservation, care, and governance which God exercises over all things that he has created in order that they may accomplish the ends for which they were created. And so this sets the stage for all of Scripture, really, but most notably the intertestamental books, the books that happen between what kind of goes on, even though Esther is a part of the Old Testament, they are these intertestamental books, the things that happen between the the, the law and the prophets, and then the coming of Jesus in the New Testament. These books like Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther that we are in today, they have no miraculous interventions by God. They all come from generally the same time period, Ezra and Nehemiah in Judah, and Esther in exile in Persia or what was Babylon, those in the promised land and those in exile. Life lived under the providence of God without a miraculous reminder that God is at work. So we have this theological context of Esther, God's divine providence at work in ways the people in the story can't see until the very end. But we, as the reader, are able to see it unfold but what about the historical and cultural context of Esther? Verses 1 through 9 give us quite a bit of understanding and detail about, what, about this context. We find that we are under the reign of King Ashuarius, son of Darius, known as Xerxes in the Greek. He ruled Persia, once the Babylonian kingdom, from 486 to 465 B.C., the text tells us he ruled 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia. And by India is meant the area drained by the Indus River, which is now 
modern-day Pakistan. And Ethiopia was the country south of Egypt in this day. It's now a part of northern Sudan, not modern Ethiopia, but still a vast, vast part of the world that this man reigned as king. This all begins in the third year of his reign, which would have been 483 B.C. The empire would have been settled now, and he would have completed the building that was done at Susa, the citadel. It was now time to celebrate all that has been done under his kingship and the kingship of his father by giving a great banquet. Now, there's disagreement on to the length of this banquet. Was it a banquet of 180 days of banqueting? <laughs> or were the 180 days in reference to the king's display of his wealth and power? And in the historical context, it would make sense that this 180 days was also a time of planning to go to war with the Greeks. His officials, his nobles, his governors, and military are all there. Would this have been the 180 days of this type of activity happen, happening? And as some commentators state, a banquet lasting 180 days would be outrageous even for the Persians. So if we take this as his display of wealth, his power, and this planning that's taking place to begin to bring all the provinces together so that they can go to war against the Greeks. Once this display has happened, a lavish banquet is held, lasting seven days. It includes everyone in, in Susa. doesn't matter your station of life. You are included in this banquet. And we read about how lavish this is. It is surely something that we can't even fathom. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple and silver rods and marble pillars and couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, and drinking was allowed at anyone's desire. The feasting was out of this world. We get a picture of how opulent this party was. The more lavish the king's hospitality in his day, the greater his claim to supremacy. And so that's the background. That is the context, both historically and culturally. And then we go on to verse 10 to 12, and there's a lot of ink spilled over Vashti's refusing to present herself in the court. Was her refusal because she believed that the king wanted her to come merely wearing her crown? would mean she was naked. That is common understanding among rabbinic tradition. Or was it her, quote unquote, flaunting her authority as queen? Or many other suggestions that are in between both of those. 
But the omission of the reason strengthens the tension of the story. And it gets us to this point where we, in our culture particularly, and even in that culture, would have had this sense of tension. This tension that she had no rights in relationship to her husband. And it sets up for the understanding of what will happen later in the story when Esther is asked to go into the king's presence uninvited. And this can be incredibly difficult for us in our cultural moment to understand and might even cause us to be turned off to the story because of the way Queen Vashti is treated. And yet, even in this highly misogynistic culture, the queen's influence was potentially very great. Think about this. Kings were relatively isolated. They only had their men who were their advisors around them. And so the, outside of them, the queen is the one who would have had the most influence over the king. But Vashti forfeited her influence by breaking the unspoken rule that should be wielded in private. But another will be afforded this opportunity of that royal position to exploit her influence. And just how great her influence will be is explored in the rest of our story. We move on to verses 13 through 22. And in these verses, we find another aspect of this book that is important for us to understand. Not only is it a book about God's providence, but it is also a book that is written in a comedic, maybe a dark comedic, but a comedic way nonetheless. It's dripping with com comedic turns and satire. And here we see it in all its glory in verses 13 through 22. A culture that prided itself in creating and adjudicating fair and good laws. The Persians loved law. We see a king making a decree out of hurt feelings and anger. Not only that, but a relatively small number of people in comparison to the entire kingdom would have known about this quote-unquote great indignancy. Only the men of the party would have known what had happened in that place. The king, who might have been the world's greatest monarch, rich and powerful, Aloof, yet generous, giving this banquet to both great and small. But now, by making this decree, guess who knows about the king's great indignancy? The entire world. The entire world knows what happened to the king. And the entire world, the entire empire now knows that the king is a childish fool. And one more important point to make as we prepare for the remainder of this book. The characters of this book are extremely flawed. We've already seen two of them, the king and the queen, both in the context of the story and of the culture, extremely flawed. But they're not the only ones. 
Right? We're, att- we're tempted to see virtue and righteousness in Mordecai and Esther. And we believe that we should emulate them. Right? We look at stories like this, and we as Christians will say, this is how we should have influence. This is how we should purport ourselves. This is what we should emulate. Let me just say that the Bible is full (laughs) of stories that are designed to show us God and his greatness, his glory, his love, his mercy, his care, but also reveal to us how sinful, how petty, how undeserving we are as people. And this is one of them. This is one of them. We want to believe that the ends justify the means. In fact, I could not believe that I found a commentator who said this, and I quote, In the characters of Esther and Mordecai, we find examples of how to live the obedient life. Like Joseph and Daniel in foreign courts, just as an aside, Joseph and Daniel were examples of the obedient life. They lived in light of God's decrees and laws, even in the midst of what it might mean for their position and influence. Coming back to this quote, so Esther and Mordecai are obedient to God's direction and plan. He goes on, Esther was a model disciple of God we should imitate. She constantly did the right thing, made the right decision, and said the right words. Esther embodied faith. Brothers and sisters, that is completely wrong. Seventh century Puritan Thomas Watson noted this about God's providence. Providence is a Christian diary, but it is not his Bible. Sometimes a bad cause prevails and gets ground, but it is not to be liked because it prevails. We must not think the better of what is sinful because it is successful. This is no rule for our actions to be directed by. You see, what we will see in this book is that there are many sinful actions that both Mordecai and Esther engage in, and yet God uses sinful people for his purposes. This helps us understand Esther. We ought to, ref- as this, what Thomas Watson said, this helps us understand Esther. We ought to refrain from thinking what a good, that a good outcome justifies our own or others' methods in achieving it. We must avoid the kind of thinking that sees Esther and Mordecai as godly examples to follow. That kind of pragmatic understanding of this account falls tragically short of its intent in light of the fact that they are both deeply compromised in their morality and their behavior. This narrative is not of good people doing good things for a good outcome, but of a good God bringing about a good outcome through sinful people. We are now positioned to see the importance of this book, not only in God, understanding God's providence, but also understanding how and where this fits into God's redemptive work. 
Esther isn't merely a book that tells the story of God's providence in this one particular event in the lives of his people, but Esther helps to set the stage for the worldwide spread of the knowledge of the one true God. In Esther, we see that in the world that King Asuarius reigns over, outposts of God's people all around the known world are set up, preparing the world for the coming of the Messiah, the one true worldwide King and Savior. God's providential work in the world today is more like the book of Esther than like the book of Exodus. And there will come a time when the Lord is fully revealed in his glory, but that is not our present moment. This is why Esther is so important for us in the modern world. The absence of God's name in Esther is not trying to tell us that God himself is absent. Instead, it tells us that when God appears far away, he is in fact very present. God appears to us, but he appears invisibly. He speaks silently. He reveals himself dimly. God gave us this book of Esther to show us that when we believe he is absent, it is an invitation to look more closely. We could put it this way. The fact that God seems absent from, absent from this world today is not because our eyes have been enlightened and our ears have been opened. God is missing from our vision because we have not opened our eyes wide enough. The theologian Herman Bavik has said that every second of the universe throbs with the heartbeat of eternity. God is present everywhere, yesterday, today, and forever. God is abundantly present and at work wherever and under whatever circumstances we find ourselves. If we can't see him, then we need to pick up the story and start reading. God's ordinary providential care is Esther's story, and it's our story. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you particularly for this book of Esther as we come to it today and for the summer. Lord, we thank you that in it we are reminded of your great providential care for us. That we are reminded that, Lord, even in the times when we might wonder if you are even there, you remind us, Lord, that even though we can't see it in the moment, you are at work. You are at work in ways that can even be beyond our greatest hope or imagination. And Lord, we also thank you that as we come to this book this summer, that we're reminded, Lord God, that you work in and through our imperfections, even our sin. Lord, that the heroes of Scripture are not so much heroes, not those who had it all figured out, not, all, not those who lived a sinless, perfect life, 
but those who are like us, very flawed. And yet, Lord, you continue to show your love and your care and your mercy. Lord, may we know that reality. May we know that truth. May we live in light of it. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.